Support for Spoleto Backstage is made possible in part by Brook Green Gardens, presenting Bruce Monroe, Southern Light, an outdoor immersive exhibit featuring seven large-scale works of art and light. Now open Wednesday through Saturday evenings. Advanced tickets are required and are available at brookgreen.org. Hello and welcome to Spoleto Backstage. It's your ticket not only to a few of Spoleto Festival USA's most memorable performances, but also to a closer look and listen to the music of Ludwig van Beethoven in this, his 250th anniversary year. Even in this unprecedented year without a Spoleto Festival, it's been a year without so many things, there's way more than enough to explore and enjoy from past seasons, including a lot of Beethoven. I'm Bradley Fuller, and I'm excited to be co-hosting once more with a figure who is a phenomenal host in his own right, first violinist of the St. Lawrence String Quartet and artistic director of the Bank of America Chamber Music Series at Spoleto Festival USA, Jeff Nuttall. Jeff, how's it going? Great to be here, Bradley. It's going well. And what a, you know, these anniversaries to me are just an excuse to delve deeper, to, to go in and to look back at, at some of the concerts we gave in the last 10 years or so and and pick some Beethoven and, and sort of go through it. And the three period thing, I think, is an obvious starting point for both audiences and musicologists alike. So it's, it's been a fun process sort of going through and picking some examples that really solidify and express what was going on in these three different periods of Beethoven's musical life. Yeah, when, when you can look back over these past seasons of Spoleto Festival, you might in any one season just have a couple Beethoven selections, but as you start to expand out to 10 years or more, you really do have some great representative selections for each of these compositional periods. When you play them in a certain order, you can kind of see Beethoven's growth as an artist, as a composer, and link that to some of his life events. So it is really exciting in this 250th anniversary year to get acquainted not just with Beethoven more generally. I mean, everybody's heard a little bit of Beethoven, but also to dive a little bit deeper and hear Beethoven, the young man, Beethoven later on in his career, and then Beethoven very late in his career, and just where he was going with all of these things. So some really exciting music in store. And where should we start but the beginning with early Beethoven? Yeah, I, I feel slightly, well, embarrassed is the wrong word. I feel, feel um, slightly self-conscious admitting it, but I prefer Beethoven before 1800 than Beethoven after 1800, to be honest. I love early period Beethoven. And just looking back at the previous 10 years, way more early period Beethoven on the programs than middle and late. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that often these late pieces, whether it be a piano sonata or a string quartet, are massive and long and would sort of overwhelm a 50-minute or a 60-minute program. But there's a there's a sparkling joyfulness and exuberance to early Beethoven and this connection, you can feel the connection to Haydn and to Mozart. And, but you can also feel the, the young voice of this young buck, so to speak, Beethoven taking over. I, I really, I love this music and this opus one, number three is one of my favorite pieces of Beethoven. It's both stormy and dramatic. It's a C minor piano trio. And if you think about C minor, what comes to mind? Fifth symphony, third piano concerto, opus 18, number four, these dark brooding, you know, massive works. Um, 
this has a little bit of that hints of the drama, but this is a classical period piece, really, and, and it owes a lot to the trios of Mozart and Haydn. I think it's a perfect way to describe it, you know, that even in this young Beethoven, where if you really just want to make it simple, you say, well, well, it is kind of like Mozart and Haydn. But even with that indebtedness, even with him saying, okay, let me show you that I understand what they're doing and can do my own thing. There is also this looking ahead to later Beethoven, still the stamp of individuality. And even if, if you read a few contemporary reviews, I think, of course, Beethoven was first known as, as a keyboardist, as a virtuoso pianist, and started to make headway as a composer a bit later in Vienna. But even if you look at some of the reviews from the time before they, they had the hindsight of what Beethoven would write later, they say, well, these works are really kind of pushing some boundaries here. And they seem really excited about the promise that he has. Plus, Beethoven himself, being a younger man, having had fewer life experiences, certainly in his case, fewer letdowns and struggles. And, you know, at this point, really 1800, 1802 and before, he's not come to face his, his deafness head on. So things in, in some respects are looking a bit more up for him at this point. So I don't know if you could say his music is necessarily more optimistic, but maybe maybe in a sense it's a little bit less tinged with some of the uh, struggle that would come to characterize a bit later on. Yeah, I agree. And this, this was a, uh, well, two things I think are interesting about this opus, really his first serious published work. And this was written before some Haydn trio. So it's a, really an overlap. And also this opus one, number three, was meaningful to Beethoven. He clearly liked it and was important to him because he arranged it as Opus 104 in, I think, 1817 for, for string quintet. Basically just took the same piece and made a new version of it. So this this was something he was very proud of. And one last story, because so, I, I can't not talk about Haydn. This was supposedly the event that led to the, the breakup, so to speak, between Beethoven and Haydn. The premiere of these trios, Haydn came, and supposedly didn't say anything to Beethoven, which if you're a musician, you know, that means you hated it, basically. <laughs> if you don't go back after the show and say, oh, Herr Beethoven, that was great. So Haydn came to the show, but didn't say anything to Beethoven. And Beethoven never really spoke to him again because he was so insulted. Ouch, ouch. Yeah, I mean, I had I had assumed that it was kind of all on Beethoven's end there, just given what I read about his personality and, you know, famous portrayals of it and things. But Maybe Haydn was being, you know, no no disrespect to your favorite. Maybe he was being a, a little harsh on the young Beethoven, his student. I think he also knew this guy has something to say. And interestingly, I mean, I love Haydn and the late trios are remarkable. But what Beethoven does is make the trio a much more democratic musical form. The cello actually has a really important role in this trio and every trio that he wrote moving forward. Whereas in Mozart and, and Haydn trios, the cello was predominantly supporting the bass, doubling the bass line, the left hand of the, of the keyboard, the forte piano in this case. So this transition from the piano trio being piano and violin with a bass accompaniment to a really full-fledged democratic musical institution that Beethoven made it is happens right here with Opus One. And that makes perfect sense given some of Beethoven's political commitments, some of his views on how society should be structured. Certainly, we think of him as a very uh, liberty-loving, democracy-loving individual. So I guess his music reflects that, whether you know he, he was making a political statement that way, probably not, but still it does all seem to fit together with some of his uh, composing there. He loved the cello. Give him that. Well, there we go. And I think I do too. And I'm ready to hear his piano trio, Opus 1, number 3, 
Who do we have performing it for us? Well, this was a special treat for me. It's Enon Barnaton piano and Jay Campbell playing the cello, one of my favorite musicians in the world. And I got to sit in and play violin. So it was a, it was a treat playing one of my favorite pieces with two of my favorite musicians. Let's give it a listen. Thank you. 
That was the first movement, Allegro con Brio, from Beethoven's Piano Trio, Opus 1, Number 3, in C minor. Jeff Nuttall, violin, Jay Campbell, cello, and Inan Barnatan, piano. Three fine performers, including you, Jeff, uh, performing a work from Beethoven's early period, 1795. Great piano trio there, at least the first movement uh, we got to hear just then. And now we'll keep with a little more early Beethoven, bump it up just a bit to the year 1800 for his septet. Really nice combination of instruments here, seven total, as the title would suggest. Yeah, this is a well. This is a divertimento. Basically, it's inspired and, and based on a Mozart divertimento. And the divertimento was often a piece played outside. It would be more than four movements traditionally, six movements in this case, and in the case of uh, Mozart's divertimento. And you know, lighthearted, charming. Not, I hate to say background music, but that was sort of the vibe. It was party music. Just hang out. You can imagine people having a beer in the corner. Uh, and that, that was the origins of this piece, sort of looking back to the divertimento of the past era. And ironically, Beethoven, by the end of his life, was sick of this piece because, by all accounts, it was by far the most popular composition of his that he, in his lifetime, it was arranged for every possible combination of instruments. And it was the basis for Schubert's octet. People couldn't get enough of the septet. And I think Beethoven became like, I wrote other things too, you know, but there is a charming effortlessness to it that really belies. Imagine listening to this piece whilst you listen to Beethoven 1820s and going, this is the same composer? It's not possible. Well, yeah. And I, A, what you mentioned about people kind of becoming known for their their great hit and not being able to leave it behind. I mean, that happens with other composers too, uh, famously Gustav Holst with The Planet. So sometimes being too good at what you do can be a curse if it happens early on. But then B, you know, this this really does maybe seem like some of the music that Beethoven's contemporaries were writing. So very skilled composers for sure, but in a slightly lighter vein, you might say more accessible, like like you said. I mean, good music for partying back in the day. So uh, it just reminds me of, of some things his contemporaries were writing perhaps when he had moved on to some of these other kind of realms that were a lot harder to break into, if you will. Yeah, this, I mean, this sort of sums up a lot of the the lightness and the influence of the classical period composers that he admired on his music in this early period. I think this is a, a great example of what Beethoven was doing in the, those first years of his compositional life. Well, let's hear it. We have two movements from the septet, the second Adagio Cantabile, so a slower movement, very lyrical in its style. And then following that is a minuet, which... Listeners may recognize kind of famous little tune there, all performed by Todd Palmer, clarinet, Eric Rusk, horn, Peter Kolke, bassoon, Daniel Phillips, violin, Sinyun Huang, viola, Ed Aaron, cello, and Ed Allman, bass.
two movements there from Ludwig van Beethoven's Septet. We heard the Adagio Cantabile second movement and the Minuet third movement performed by Todd Palmer, clarinet, Eric Rusk-Horn, Peter Kolke bassoon, Daniel Phillips violin, Sinyun Huang viola, Ed Aaron cello, and Ed Allman double bass. That rounds out the early Beethoven focus and what should come next, but middle Beethoven, or as he's sometimes called, Jeff? Heroic period. They, a nickname which I think is really apt, although who knows what Beethoven would have thought of all this, like prodding and prying into his uh, life. But I think it's it's apt in a sense because he, he went off in a different direction in, in so many different ways. He he changed the scale. He changed the emotional landscape, the the, the difference of dynamics within a phrase, within a movement, he changed the length, these massive sonata form movements in huge, hugely long uh, quartets and symphonies. So everything changed, even though a lot of the forms were the same ones that he started writing in, in the early period, the string quartet, the symphony, how he used them became really different. And this, this sense of struggle, the sense of, you know, the almost Napoleonic qualities uh, of, of some of these works separate them from the early period. I, I always like to think that Beethoven sort of single-handedly threw music into the Romantic era. This is, you know, we're going to hear the ghost trio. The, the slow movement from this ghost trio is, is, is so captivating, but it's so powerfully expressive and romantic. And the contrasts in orchestration and dynamics are really forward-looking. And, and then the, the, the mass of the Kreutzer Sonata in, in terms of its just sort of volcanic basalt pillars. Music like this had not been heard at all before Beethoven went there. And you have to be careful not to map every single thing from someone's life, you know, straight into how the music sounds. But I think it's worth mentioning that starting around this point, 1802, Beethoven writes this letter, the Heiligenstadt Testament, where he's being very honest about how he struggled with depression, with the onset of deafness, and really how devastating it had been for him. But he's saying, you know, my art is going to be the thing that gets me out of this. And I'm going to approach art and my music just in a new way. And you definitely see that in these pieces. I mean, this ghost trio that we'll hear first, the middle movement, I mean, is, is kind of otherworldly in, in an eerie way. I mean, this is, a, this is a great story too. And supposedly he was planning and working on writing an opera based on Shakespeare's Macbeth. And this movement, he sort of, it never actually came to fruition, obviously, because we don't have it. But uh, some of the music in this movement is from the ghost scene from Verdi's Macbeth. And you can really, you can sense that. Uh, we're glad to, I mean, how cool would it be to have an opera by Beethoven on Macbeth? But we have little glimpses of that emotional world in this movement. I, I definitely wish we had a Beethoven opera Macbeth. I, mean, I think that'd be a, a staple of, of the operatic repertoire if we did, but We'll, we'll be very happy with what we have and with all of the uh, recordings of Beethoven's music that we have. And, and with that, let's get into this music. We have here pianist Inan Barnatan, violinist Karen Gomio, and cellist Joshua Roman performing here the second movement of Beethoven's Piano Trio in D Major, Opus 70, number one, nicknamed Ghost.
That was the second movement, Largo S.I. Espressivo, from Beethoven's trio, Opus 70, number one, The Ghost, performed live on stage at the Dock Street Theater by Inan Barnaton Piano, Karen Gomio Violin, and Joshua Roman Cello. Really fascinating music there, kind of eerie, but but com so compelling at the same time. And, and from this time in Beethoven's life where... Really, it's it's kind of quintessential Beethoven. I think if you had to pick an era of the composer's output, you know, middle Beethoven is probably what people most think of when they when they hear Beethoven. We didn't get to hear the slow movement from Opus One Number Three, but it's a totally different experience. And Beethoven is he's committing to extremes now. He's committing to extremes in tempo. He's committing to extremes in number of notes and how they occur in dynamics and. And just the emotional character and content is is so extreme compared to what it was in the early period. And I think these are these are the obvious things that make it make it different. And and you can really see his trajectory aiming toward these massive and powerful late late works. And as he's aiming toward them, he'll he'll go through some some other really well known works or kind of works that just stand out in people's minds as uh, you know making up. The, the middle Beethoven bread and butter, if you will, works like the Kreutzer Sonata. His violin sonata number nine, Opus 47, technically, but it's earned its own nickname. So you know something about it must be a standout. Yeah, I well, I'm selfish here because the Kreutzer Sonata for me has always been a part of my musical life. Ever since I was a kid, listening to it, wanting to play it, and then working on it so hard as a student finding a pianist that could tackle it with me because both parts are so difficult and so demanding it's been a huge part of my life and it, it's one of those pieces that i um i love so much and i but i could never play very well i always i always fail i always get really excited and then just crash and burn so to hear a performance like this it's so focused and so powerful but also like really clean and all the notes are there by livia and Pedja. it's uh, it makes me really happy because it it brings back memories for those of you who don't know the piece, you'll hear it, but the opening is, is terrifying because you come out alone, solo violin, and play this, the first theme. 
And it's really awkward. It doesn't sound that difficult, but it's just so easy to sound horrible on. So every time I hear this, I always have these memories of failed performances in my student years of this piece where I just totally crashed and burned. And it's especially difficult because the violin plays the melody and then the piano comes in and plays the same tune, but it's way easier on the piano than it is on the violin. So it, the piano always sounds way better than the violin. So it's it's a great example. And in this case, they they don't. Livia plays this opening so beautifully. And it just to, to point out that it's really hard uh, is something. Else. But it, this piece is... It's, again, it sums up this whole late Beethoven thing, pushing the boundaries. In this case, what's possible on the instruments? I can only imagine it would have been incredibly challenging. You know, it was dedicated, and the nickname, the Kreutzer, comes. For all you violinists out there, Rudolf Kreutzer, you probably know the Kreutzer etudes. You know, everybody knows Kreutzer etudes. This piece was written and dedicated to Kreutzer, who, who never played it. And he, he said it was outrageously unintelligible. <laughs> it was the guy who dedicated the piece. So he never played it. But it's a great example of the reaction from public and players alike that was happening to Beethoven's music uh, when this piece was composed. And not only when it was composed, but even after you have people like the novelist Leo Tolstoy writes a short book called The Kreutzer Sonata and kind of how this music ties in with a whole love story and all types of drama and intrigue there. But you don't even need a story like that to hear just how powerful and moving it is. Like you said, the very opening chords in the violin, yes, certainly much harder to play on violin than piano. But but from those, you just get a sense that this is music of intensity and gravity. And again, as you said, though the piano part may be easier than the violin, it's it's no mere, you know, background, backup track easy kind of accompaniment. The piano has an equal role here too. And so it's just as fair to call this a sonata for violin and piano, or maybe even you know more accurate to call it that than just a violin sonata. Beethoven entitled these sonatas for piano and violin, and the same as Mozart. So this is a piano sonata first, but it's, as you say, equal parts. And um, the, the challenges, you know, I, I just give him credit as well. He's, he's breaking new ground here to start a sonata with a solo violin thing it just never happened so he's he's not only you know pushing the boundaries with technique and the size of the movement and the extremes of dynamic and emotional content but he's also formally saying hey here's an idea a slow introduction with a solo violin to a, a sonata for piano and violin you know never been done before breaking new ground well what do you say we break into it and hear this phenomenal music now violinist Livia Son and pianist Pedro Mutsievich performing the first movement of Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata.
That was the volcanic first movement from Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, Enon Barnaton Piano, Livia Sohn Violin. Wow, what a performance. I mean, I, I just always love hearing that piece, and each listen yields something new. The, the coda, the very end, is just so spine-tingling. It's in intensity, and he, he comes to that quiet finish, and then just like lets the dogs out. It's just so exciting. I, I remember in performance that you're just, you're totally spent at the end of the first movement and you have to sort of pick yourself up and, and get through the rest of the piece. But that's a, that's a real challenge in so many ways, but it's, it's such great music. I love that sonata. Absolutely. And, and the challenge, as you mentioned, being multifaceted is not just technical, you know, in terms of getting the notes out on the violin or striking all the right keys on the piano but it's it's a musical challenge you know how do you make sense of this music what is is the message yeah he's you know what you see you see hints of it in the in the middle period in terms of all the things we've been talking about but it really comes to a distilled finish in the late period especially now i am sort of biased because i play in a string quartet but especially in these late string quartets i think it's safe to say if you're really sort of get the essence of late Beethoven, you start and end by listening and experiencing the string quartets. And we're so, I mean, as a player, we're so thankful that Beethoven chose this form of the quartet to express these incredible emotions and really sort of summing up human existence in the form of the string quartet. And it's it's interesting to imagine, you know, by all accounts, Beethoven struggle to write. He wasn't like Mozart. It didn't just flow from him. And we see in his sketchbooks, it's just constant rewriting and scribbling out and changing and redoing. It's, and you get a sense of that in the music, I think. But these quartets, he admitted were, you can imagine his, his table, so to speak. It was just, there were pieces of movements all around and he would piece them together. It wasn't like he finished one and then started another one. He was composing these quartets together almost. He says famously about Opus 131, which is an amazing work, perhaps is the finest of the late quartets. He said, well, I pieced it together through some movements I had lying around. <laughs> he put seven movements together and changed the course of music history. So it's a really interesting, the process of Beethoven's compositional style, how he composes is really interesting. And, and I think it's important to think about that when we listen to these late quartets. The process and and still how he's delving into all these human emotions, expressing them differently. I mean, you have as well certain reaching, it almost seems for kind of another plane. I think, you know, late Beethoven just going into to another zone that way. But in, in movements like this Cavatina from his Opus 130, this sweet sadness, kind of. There's a section right at the end of the Cavatina where, and Beethoven even writes it in the score, he, he writes Beklempt which is sort of, you're so, so emotional. You're so, you get all choked up and you can, you can hardly speak. And there's these, he's written out these murmurs, you know, the, the effort to sing has become, uh, is, has become so difficult that you, you can't speak anymore. And it's so powerful, but to, to come up with that and to write this beautiful melody and have it distill into that essence at the end is, um, 
it's one of those pieces that you play and you think, I, I, I am not worthy. I can't do this justice. I love it, but I, you know, it's it always feels out of reach somehow in, in terms of being able to get across what Beethoven was was trying to show. Well, even if there's always a little bit more to be said or, or more room to explore, more room to interpret and perform again with a, a new shade of meaning or something, I think you and the other members of the St. Lawrence String Quartet did a phenomenal job in this 2010 performance of Ludwig van Beethoven's Cavatina from his Opus 130 Quartet.
That was the Cavatina from Beethoven's Quartet Opus 130, performed by the St. Lawrence String Quartet. Wonderful music there. Cavatina, a title indicating a, a shorter aria, kind of a, a taken from the world of opera. But that was purely instrumental music, of course, taken from Beethoven's Opus 130 Quartet, a work which was originally to end with something quite different than, than what's part of it now. Great stories in music history, like why did Beethoven do what he did? So just to put it in perspective, the Grossa Fuga, which you'll hear momentarily, is 15 minutes of, it's basically a whole quartet unto itself. It has four sections, almost four distinct movements. It's, it's contrapuntal to, I mean, to the edge of existence. It's violent. It's, it's, I mean, it sounds, it's, we'll put it this way. Stravinsky said uh, about the Grossa Fuga, it's, it was contemporary and it will always be contemporary, <laughs> if that makes sense. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but basically it was unintelligible in the 1820s and it's still unintelligible. So if you can, I've, I've done this before, actually turn on your radio and you hear in the middle of the Grossa Fuga and you think, what the heck is, is that Schoenberg or some new music that I'm hearing? Because it's incredibly dissonant music. Um, but it's Beethoven. So imagine the effect that this piece had, this ending, right after the Cavatina that we just heard. I think the, the outcry was even greater than anything Beethoven had faced thus far. And so whether he believed that people were right in saying, Beethoven, that's just too much. You can't end the piece like that. Or whether he was just sort of, well, my publisher thinks it'll be better and sell better if I put a different movement in, which he did. And he proceeded to take out the Grossa Fuga, make its own separate opus number. It's its own piece. He even arranged it for two pianos. Um, but he he rewrote, and the, probably the, one of the last things he composed was the final movement um, to Opus 130, which is a lovely, charming rondo finale. Couldn't be, it was, could be farther, musically speaking, from what the Grossa Fuga was. So the piece itself, when you hear it with the original Grossa Fuga, is a totally different experience as a whole than hearing it with the uh, the, fina the rondo finale that he ended up adding to 130. There's sharp extremes we were talking about and, and ranges of difference, so characteristic of late Beethoven. And, and this Grossa Fuga, this grand fugue comes from 1826, the penultimate year of his life, and really, really just does seem to go to some kind of cosmic place. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, just listening to it, I, I feel like I'm kind of in, in another realm beyond, you know, other periods of Beethoven or even some of his contemporaries. But but it's like you are getting a glimpse into the future as maybe some of his contemporaries understood and as maybe other contemporaries said, hey, what are you doing? This is this is unintelligible and, and just totally not what music is right now. And to this day, whenever we play this, I'm, there are moments in performance where I think we've got to be lost. It can't be right. I mean, and literally, <laughs> you come out of it and you're, you're fine, you're together, but it's just, there are moments that are so confusing to the ear, even after playing it hundreds of times and rehearsing it for many hours. It's a, it's a tremendous challenge to play and make intelligible, so to speak. But it's for me, it's all worth it because at the end, the last page, you've, you've gone on this crazy journey. You've struggled against the instruments and with your instruments and uh, trying to stay together and trying to be uh, make it intelligible. 
And then the sun comes out and there's this heroic end. And it all feels really great when it when we finally come out of the tunnel into this coda. It's it makes the journey really worthwhile. It reminds me of what's known as a Picardy third and some of these Baroque era fugues. You know, you have a piece that's in a minor key or, you know, some other kind of tonal region, and then it ends though on this very affirming major chord. So it's like we've arrived. Here it is, as you were describing. Yeah, very well said. The St. Lawrence String Quartet performing, again, another program from 2010. This is Beethoven's Grossa Fuga.
That was the Grossa Fuga, performed by the St. Lawrence String Quartet, live on stage at the Dock Street Theater. And that ends our journey through the three musical periods of Beethoven. Looking back at Opus 1 and the Septet and ending with that, Bradley, it's been quite a trip. Really, yeah, an, an amazing journey in that work alone and also just seeing all these pieces, hearing all these pieces from Beethoven's early works, works like his Piano Trio, Opus 1, Number 3, through those middle period works like the Kreutzer Sonata and then to the Grossa Fuga, goes to show you how much he accomplished as a composer, how much he grew as an artist personally, sure, but also where he took music in his career, moving from the classical era, taking us squarely into the romantic and also forever altering some forms like the symphony and the string quartet, even to the point that composers in those genres after him were really made to pause before they started writing those kinds of works. And they had to think, you know, what can I do now that Beethoven has come before? Yeah, he, he set the bar very high and, and he's really famous for a reason. As I think the music today definitely made plain. So thanks for planning and programming all those pieces over the past decade and you know also for performing in some of them. I mean, really, really phenomenal music making there. And it's been a treat not only hearing that music, but uh, speaking with you about it and getting a little more context on these pieces. The pleasure has been all mine, Bradley. What a what a great trip for me to look back over the years and, and pick some of this music and then hang out with you and talk about it. It's, it's been a great ride. Likewise, and I definitely look forward to sharing some more about music with you in the future, hearing you perform some more, and getting more Beethoven and other composers, including ones I've probably not even heard of yet, at future Spoleto Festival USA Chamber Music Series performances. And that does it for this episode of Spoleto Backstage. Spoleto Backstage is made possible in part by Bank of America and the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Special thanks to Spoleto Festival USA. The engineer is Duke Marcos. The producer is A.T. Shire. The executive producer is Sherry Hutchinson. I'm Bradley Fuller. I'm Jeff Nuttall. And until next time, take care. <laughs>